wonderful chance to worship the Lord together in song, reflecting on His many good gifts and those uh, who've gone before us. Uh, as you find your way back to Psalm chapter 2 in your Bibles, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for your many blessings. Let us not take them for granted. And let us remember from where they come, our Lord, Christ who has gone before us, Christ who has given everything for us. As we open your word this morning, Lord, give us grace to see you and to trust you and to be changed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday we began a new series through the book of Psalms, what we entitled Walking with God in the Meantime, the Christian life through the lens of the Psalms. And we talked about how this book, the book of the Psalms, is all about what it means and looks like to walk with God in the midst of a fallen world, a world where things do not work the way that they're supposed to. This world is, in fact, broken. It doesn't work the way it should. And it's full of broken people, including God's people. Including God's people. And so, on the one hand, as God's people, we worship the one true king of the universe and creator of everything, the sovereign Lord, and that is something worth celebrating. You know, this, this God who has made himself known to us by the Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ, who has you know, allowed us to know him, who's forgiven us through his Son, who's invited us into his holy presence. Think about that, to have an audience before the King of the universe, before the sovereign God. That is something worth celebrating. And the Psalms help us to celebrate much this reality that we have a relationship with the God of the universe. At the same time, every day we are reminded in some measure that though God's kingdom is here in part, it is not yet here in full. There's still something left to be done. God's will is not always done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a sadness and a, a sickness that remains, a sin in this world. And the Psalms bear witness to this reality too. And the tension of living in a world where God has given us his promises, but the fulfillment is still yet to come. So we live in this thing we call a meantime, this time between the promises of God's righteous rule and his commitment to establish justice and peace and deliverance in this world. So between the promise that he will do that and its glorious realization, we live in the meantime. And in this meantime, a rebellion is brewing. Though our God is sovereign, his reign is constantly being challenged. There is a war being waged over who should really be in charge, over who ought to really be calling the shots, and therefore over how, who gets to decide what really is good in this meantime, what a real blessed life actually looks like. There's a war being waged, and it's all around us, and it's 
even within us, this war in the meantime over who's really king. That's the subject of our passage this morning in Psalm 2. The reign of the Son and the blessing of God. Now, if you were here last week when we looked at Psalm chapter 1, you will remember that this same question was at the heart of that psalm as well. Where shall we find true and lasting blessing in this world? To which Psalm 1 answered, uh, it's found in a life shaped by God's transforming word. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on that law day and night. Psalm 1 ascribed blessing to the one who delights in God's word. Now look at the last verse of Psalm 2, verse 12. Notice how it ends on the same note that Psalm 1 began, the subject of blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 1 ascribes blessing to the one delighting in God's word. Psalm 2 ascribes blessing to the one who takes refuge in God's son. See the connection there. And it's connections like this and several other between these two psalms that have caused readers throughout the centuries to see both of these working together as an introduction to the whole book of the psalms. So both orienting us to the way we are to read this book, expectant of God's blessing in the midst of a fallen world, but also orienting us to how we ought to go about living our lives in the midst of a fallen world, seeking blessing in God's word and seeking blessing in God's son. But again, God's reign, his dominion, is not unchallenged. And so this psalm walks us through that challenge to God's reign in verses 1 through 3. And then it gives us a glimpse of God's response to that challenge in kind of two parts, verses 4 through 6, where the Lord speaks, verses 7 through 9, where his king speaks. And then finally, it closes with what our proper response to God's reign should be and what's ultimately at stake in, in whether or not we surrender to his son, whether we will find wrath or refuge. The final verses in 10 through 12. So verses 1 through 3 and the challenge to God's reign. The challenge to God's reign and the revolution brewing inside all of us. So take a look at verses 1 through 3. On the one hand, these opening lines describe human history ever since the fall back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve took the serpent's word over God's word and tried to take God's place on his throne. So this is the story of human history. And ever since that time, a revolution has been brewing, a challenge to God's claim of universal authority over all creation. So the picture here in, in verse 1 is all of the nations of the world gathering together and all of their leaders for this great summit where they're going to conspire of just how they're going to knock God off his throne. All the nations getting together, planning, plotting. That's the picture here. How are we going to knock God off his throne? And the target of their conspiracy is identified in verse 2. So they're conspiring against the Lord, Yahweh, the creator of the universe and the covenant God of Israel. They're conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed. Hebrew word is Messiah. We've all heard that word before. It's a picture of 
one of God's chosen servants, usually a king or a priest in the Old Testament, who is chosen by God and then consecrated for his service, which is usually marked by an anointing with oil, God's anointed. Here in Psalm 2, the Davidic king who sits on the throne in Jerusalem, as verse 6 tells us. So the rebel, in other words, so to rebel against God in heaven, or against the Lord, is also to rebel against his king on earth, against his anointed Messiah. So the conspirators have identified their targets. The Lord and his anointed. That's who were taken down. And in verse 3, we hear their battle cry. Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. Freedom. Live free or die. We've, we're familiar with some of those battle cries around here, right? See it on the license plates of our northern neighbors. But here, it's not, it's not the tyranny of the British crown, but the, the tyranny of the divine crown. They see God's reign as oppressive. And we need to break free. Get rid of him. New management. We can do a much better job than him at running this world. And so we've conspired, we've plotted together, and we're going to take God down. That's the picture of this challenge to God's reign. This is the story of human history. This is the story of human history. Every nation that has set itself up against God and his people, ancient or modern, every nation that has sought to fill this earth with their own glory at the expense of God's glory, which is, by the way, in some measure, every nation and every member of every nation, all on this earth are guilty of high treason against the crown against God's crown. As God's people, we're, we're not generally inclined to be so direct about our rebellion. We tend to kind of you know, downplay it. But it, that same rebellion that we see dramatically displayed here, that same rebellion is, is brewing in every single human heart. It's there. And it's exacerbated by the trouble and the trials that we come across in a fallen world, the pressure, the heat that puts on us as we try and make sense of things. If I were in charge, things wouldn't go wrong like that. I wouldn't have to face suffering and disappointment if I could just be in control here. If I had my way, the world would look different. I wouldn't let people take advantage of me. I wouldn't have to wait in traffic people would just move over when they saw me coming because it's clearly more important for me to get where I'm going than it is for them. If I were king, people would know that. If I were king, people would love me. They'd stop talking behind my back. They wouldn't make promises and then not keep them. And if they did, they would pay. If I were king. If I were king the boss would finally realize that I am the greatest asset this company has. The coach would want me to start on the team. Friends would want my advice. My parents would listen to me because I get it and they obviously don't. If I were king, I wouldn't mess up like God does. And all of a sudden, we're part of the conspiracy. 
We're going to take him down. Because we would do a better job of running the world than he. Verses 1 through 3 do not only give us a picture of human history since the fall, they also give us God's perspective on that rebellion, on that history. Look at verse 1 again. It's asking a question. Why do the nations conspire? When you think about it, if you step back from it and think about what's going on and what these nations are going up against, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Uh, it's clearly a bad idea. World versus God, finite versus infinite. The odds are not in our favor. Okay, I mean, it's, it's kind of like when you're watching your child do something that clearly is a bad idea, and they end up getting hurt or in trouble, and, and what's your response? What were you thinking? You know, did you not realize that if you tried to ramp your bike over a burning grill, evil Knievel style, you might set the yard on fire? I mean, did it cross your mind? You know, that kind of, what were you thinking? And happily, that hasn't happened in our yard yet, but we'll see. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It, it's just astonishing that they would try something like that. And the second part of, the, of uh, that verse makes it pretty clear. The people's plot in vain. It's foolish. It's hollow. Their plans are empty. They cannot accomplish what they're trying to do. And they ought to have known better. And it's the spirit of astonishment at, that they would even try this hostile takeover that's expressed in verses 4 through 6 and the assertion of God's reign. If you've ever wondered if God has a sense of humor, here you go. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He looks down at this swarming rebellion and he laughs. He scoffs at them. He mocks them. It's funny to him. And it's kind of an ironic twist on chapter 1. In chapter 1 we were told not to walk in the way of sinners and so on or sit in the seat of mockers. Well here the Lord is sitting in heaven mocking the mockers which is kind of a harsh picture, but it really is funny when you think about it for a minute. I mean, it's kind of like watching a little ankle-biting schnauzer run up to a Great Dane and start barking as if it's going to take it down. Have you ever seen that? It's comical. Now, multiply that times infinity, and that's the picture. Were all the armies of the earth led by every king, president, and prime minister, including every terrorist group, brandishing every sword, every machine gun, every tank, every nuclear weapon, were they all to gather together as one army against the Lord, it would be funny to him. It would be funny. What were you thinking? There's no way this can go well, people. At the same time, it's no joke. It may tickle God's funny bone to see the foolishness of this, but it also kindles his wrath, kindles his anger. It is no little thing to oppose God's reign and try to knock him off the throne. It is high treason. It is high treason. And so God speaks to the nations and to us and the, the, the rebel, rebellious corners of our heart he speaks to them a word of terror. 
And this is what it is, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Think about that for a minute. God exercises his rightful and steadfast reign through the human king that he has enthroned on Zion in Jerusalem. And the fact that God has set his king on his throne is a word of terror. It's a word of terror. Why? What's going on here? thought the, the coming of the king was supposed to be good news. Well, verses 7 through 9 develop this a bit. As we hear from the king himself describe what God's reign is like and the, the role he plays as the supreme expression of God's reign here on earth. Verses 7 through 9. So here the king speaks, this human king that God has set on his throne. In verse 3, the nations spoke, uh, their battle cry of rebellion. In verse 6, the Lord speaks a word of terror. Now we hear the king speak a word of authority, telling us what the Lord in heaven has decreed as he has installed his king on the throne and made him supreme. The central expression of his dominion over all the earth. And it's focused in that throne on Zion. So the king begins in verse 7, describing his relationship to God. So he starts by describing his relationship to God, which is why he's supreme. He says, the Lord said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or today I have begotten you. Now, if we stop for a minute we have to ask ourselves, what other parts of Scripture does that verse remind us of? Verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I mean, certainly it takes us back to 2 Samuel 7, and God's promise to David to place one of his descendants on the throne forever, saying, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. So it's got that Davidic promise ringing in it, but... At the same time, it, it thrusts us forward to the New Testament, where we hear verses like John 3.16 ringing in the background. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or uh, we think of Matthew 3, where Jesus is being baptized in the voice that comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, that voice at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, and so on. Not to mention the fact that this verse is cited in Acts 13.33 in reference to Jesus. So, it's all very interesting to see where this verse is leading us. And take a look at what God promises this king. Look at verse 8. How he describes his reward. So, we have his relationship. He's a son. Here's his reward. Verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. Global dominion. Universal dominion. That's his reward. The very nations that were conspiring to knock him off his throne will be his inheritance. There's irony for you. And verse 9, what's he supposed to do with these nations? Verse 9, you will rule them, or more literally, you will shepherd them, with an iron scepter, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
Now, if we were to get different translations out and set them side by side, we'd see a couple differences in this verse. Some of your Bibles say, you will break them to pieces with an iron scepter. Some of them say, you will rule them or shepherd them. Um, and for what it's worth, I think shepherding is capturing the idea here. But we have to remember, part of what it means to shepherd in the Old Testament is to judge. And so the picture of his shepherding of these rebellious nations is taking a nine iron to a bunch of clay pots. Judgment. You think of Ezekiel 34, where God himself shepherds his people, binding up the wounded, seeking the lost, and at the same time punishing the fat sheep who are taking advantage of the other ones. So... Or Matthew 25, Jesus uses the same imagery as a shepherd who also has the responsibility to judge. He stands at the end of time in the great judgment, dividing sheep from the goats. So a shepherd leads, guides, cares, feeds, protects, and also judges. And the divine uh, throne that David is sitting on, or whoever the Davidic king is, is called to shepherd these nations, part of which means judging them. But the burning question which we've already alluded to, who is this king? So who is the king that's going to sit on the throne, having this relationship to God, receiving this great reward, and, re and exercising his responsibility to shepherd the nations in judgment? If you pick up most commentaries on the Psalms, they'll explain how this psalm was probably fit, uh, first used in worship uh, at the, on the occasion of installing a Davidic king. And so it's an installation hymn. It's a celebration of God setting his king on his throne and, and all of the great hopes and promises that go with that. Uh, and on that day, he's adopted as God's son, kind of a la 2 Samuel 7. And so the promises of 8 and 9 are Israel's hope. They're kind of a, a rhetorical bravado as they look out at these other nations that threaten them and saying, no, our king's actually going to be in charge here. And most likely... The hymn, the psalm, probably did have that function at one point. But we have to ask the question, is that all it's doing here? Is it just a, a record of what Israel once thought and did when they put a new king on the throne? Or is there something more going on? Is there some grander purpose that this psalm plays in the whole book and in the Bible as a whole? For no ancient Israelite king who sat on David's throne ever received the promise uh, the promised reward given to this king. No ancient Israelite king ever had the nations as, in, as his inheritance. No Israelite king ever exercised the responsibilities given to this king in terms of shepherding all nations. And remember again what we mentioned in verse 2, the word for anointed in verse 2. That's where we get our word Messiah. Put that word into Greek, you get the word Christ, the anointed king. I think that the writers of the New Testament, when they read Psalm 2 and pointed to Jesus, I think they were correct. That this is not just a dream of what God might do someday, but a prophecy of what he would do and now has done through his son, his eternal son, Jesus Christ. Which is both good news and bad news, depending on your relationship to the son. God has put his king on the throne, and that office has ultimately been taken up by Jesus. So, how do we respond to the king? How do we respond? 
He is reigning, even in this, min this meantime. What should our posture toward him be? That's what the psalmist ends describing in verses 10 through 12. He gives us a word of wisdom on what our response to God and his son ought to be. He begins by addressing the very kings and rulers of verse 1. Take a look at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, remember, the kings are gathering together. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. These verses go a long ways to correct our misconceptions about God's reign and the true nature of blessing. Now, there's no question it, it's still a very, very strong warning to those who continue in their rebellion and who refuse to surrender to God and his son on the throne. If you're still trying to knock God off his throne and you hear a report that the king is there and he's not going anywhere, that is bad news because that means you're done. That's not good news. But the announcement that God reigns is good news. It is good news. And listen to Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The announcement that God reigns is good news to those who recognize that they need his reign and are willing to surrender to it. It is not oppressive. God's reign is not oppressive. The chains and shackles that we just have to get, get off in fact, it is precisely what we need to walk with God and enjoy his blessing in this fallen world, in this meantime. We need a king. We are not able to run this world ourselves. And some of us are going to have to say that over and over again to get it through our heads. We are not able to run this world ourselves. We weren't asked to. And we do a bad job when we try. We need a king. We need a shepherd. We need someone who can guide us through this mess of life. We need someone who can sympathize with us in the midst of our trials. Someone who knows what it's like to be taken advantage of, to be betrayed, to be, have his ideas dismissed or his dreams crushed. We need someone who knows what that's like, who can guide us through it. We need someone who knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, but yet someone who is greater than that temptation. Someone who can stand with us before the Father, representing us and offering his life of perfect obedience as a substitute for our life of rebellion. We need a king who will stand in our place for us, who can offer forgiveness and peace with God, having taken the death penalty of high treason on himself, 
having died, really, literally died, with the full weight of hell hanging on his shoulders in order to rescue us from it. We need a king who does that. We need a king who's stronger than death. A king who is not defeated by death, but instead turns it on its head in the resurrection. A king, a risen savior who is able to sustain us by his spirit as he sits at the right hand of his father, always living to make intercession for us. He is always living to make intercession for us. He can guide us. He can shepherd us. Someone who will finish the work that he started. Who will be faithful to carry us all the way through this meantime to the glory of God's new creation that's waiting. We need a king like that. Someone who will be faithful in that day to judge the unyielding evil of this world and deal with it so that we can persevere against it in the meantime. We need Jesus as our king. We need Jesus as our king. Revelation 7.17 describes him. For the lamb, the lamb who was slain, the lamb in the midst of the throne reigning will be their shepherd. The lamb who was slain is sitting on the throne and he is our shepherd. He will guide us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will be faithful to carry us through the sin and the sickness and the sorrow of this broken world to the glorious eternity with him. So a full and rewarding life, a blessed life, this side of eternity, is a life surrendered to God's Son. Kiss the Son, verse 12. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son. It's kind of a picture of you know, kissing his hand or his ring or something. Show your allegiance to the king. Put your trust in him. Find your refuge in him. Surrender to God's son. Stop trying to fix everything yourself and assert your will and take refuge in him instead. And verse 11 gives us a picture of a heart of surrender. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now that sounds like a bit of an odd couplet there. Rejoice and fear. But when you think about it, who we're going before and what our relationship to him is makes perfect sense. We are coming before the almighty creator, king, and judge of the universe, who alone deserves our allegiance and who has the right to punish those who oppose him. At the same time, we have been adopted into his family, and he is our father. And he invites us through our union, <clears throat> excuse me, our union with Jesus to share in his inheritance and to be bathed in his love. Fear and joy, all together. Reverence and delight. That's a heart of true surrender. So are we trusting in Jesus? Do we stand and look at this world and say, no, no, I can do better. 
this is messed up. I could do better. I think I'm going to do things my way. And if people would just follow me, we'd all be better. Are we surrendering to God's Son? Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when there's no way possible I can see how His will is being accomplished through this. Do we trust Him? Are we finding our refuge in Him? Do we realize, no, we really are that bankrupt? We really are treasonous in our hearts, left to ourselves. Do we see that we need God's reign? And I'm not just talking about trusting Him once upon a time when we became a Christian. I'm talking about trusting Him today in the midst of all of whatever it is that life is throwing at you. Is Jesus enough? Is He sufficient? Is He sovereign? Is He all that we have? That's what this psalm calls us to. That's what this psalm says. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. May that be so among us today. Let's pray. God, oh, how we need you. Lord, even as we think about all our efforts to, to seek your face and to take delight in you, it's still stained by sin, God. Oh, how we need you to be our refuge. We are so incapable of making life work. And we don't like believing that because it means that we're vulnerable and we're weak. But that is true. And that's okay because we have a sufficient, steadfast king who takes our place and who is with us to guide us. God, let that resonate in our hearts this morning and let it shape the way we live this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.